If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis. We've been, we should be in Genesis 26 or 27, but we're going back to Genesis 3. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 3. I've entitled the sermon, very inventive, very creative, Christmas in Genesis 3. And very creatively. But anyway, we'll be reading from verse 1. Let's pray as we come to God's word. It is holy ground. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of having your word. I thank you for your word. I thank you that every word comes through your hand. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd give me the words to speak well of Emmanuel, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. The fall, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will, sure, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he take, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat 
and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. I don't know whether you've ever given any thought to discovering Christmas in Genesis. And it was my thought, my plan to do today and over the next couple of weeks as we anticipate Christmas is to do just that, to look into the book of Genesis in order that we might see Christmas, in order that we might see Jesus. Because Jesus is the centre of Christmas. And I know we probably say it, you're used to it being said every year from a pulpit. Christmas has ultimately become something else, hasn't it? It's become, but it is ultimately about the incarnation of the Son of God. And let's never forget that this, that this time of year is a, is, is a time for us to remember the incarnation of the God-man. So the text this morning is Genesis 3.15 which provides us with the first glimmer in the Bible of the Gospel. In the sound of music, I, didn't, I won't break into song, I promise you, but they say that it starts at the very beginning, a very good place to start. And when we think of the Gospel, the story that all God has done in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find ourselves beginning right here, right here, Genesis 3.15, a hint of the coming Redeemer, the one who is the seed of the woman. Now, in doing this, and by necessity, our studies will be selective rather than exhaustive. Some of you may be disappointed by parts we leave out, but I do that for you so that you can work on your own. But it's helpful sometimes to think of the Bible as a two-part, two-act play. And if you only come in for the second half of the play, you have no idea who the characters are because you weren't there at the beginning. If you leave at half time, you have no idea how it ends. So it takes the whole Bible. That's why we teach the whole Bible, the whole counsel of God. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. Alternatively, it can be helpful to think of the Bible as a whodunit, whereas in the early pages you only have hints and ideas and suggestions. But as we progress we discover exactly what was involved in those earlier pages. Or we can think of it essentially as a book with the answers at the back. So the things that intrigue us and leave us wondering may be answered by going further into the book. I really encourage you to read the Old Testament. Somebody who professed to be a Christian once sent, said from the pulpit recently to a church of over 10,000 about the Old Testament being redundant. It isn't. It's glorious. And it shows us Jesus. So it's very, very important as we do a study like this, when we look at chapters at the beginning of the Bible, we should keep in mind what we're told at the back. 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, you may not put that as a verse in your Christmas card, though I think you probably should, to be honest, because it, it's so legitimate to do so, because that's a straightforward emphasis on why Jesus came. He came to destroy the works of the devil. So, in that, in that aspect, 
is addressed here in Genesis 3.15. So the first point, the first point will be the context, the record of the entry of sin into the world. Second point is the consequences of the entry of sin into the world. And thirdly, the cure for the entry of sin into the world. So the context, what are we dealing with in these opening chapters of Genesis? It's not so long ago, it's only probably about just over a year ago that I preached this from a different angle, a different perspective, but it's a historic event that determined the eternal destiny of mankind. Before there was time, before there was anything, there was God. There was God. God made the world. He made it for his glory. He made it to help us know him, love him, and trust him. God created the world. Now, just by saying that, that puts us on the wrong side of humanity today, doesn't it? But it doesn't make it any less the truth. God created the world. Before there was time, before there was anything, there was God. God made the world for his glory. And he made us to know him, to love him, and to trust him. God made the world to manifest his own glory in order that we might know him, love him, and trust him. So when you read the opening sections, you realise that God lit up the darkness. He filled up the emptiness. And he put within the context of the origins of things all that was beautiful, delightful, attractive, enjoyable. And God made Adam and Eve, as if you like, his special additions. The way that they were fashioned was different from what all that would follow in terms of creation. We read that in Genesis 2. He made Adam out of the dust of the earth and he formed Eve from Adam's rib. Created by God. They communed with God. They were perfect for each other. They were absolutely perfect for one another in the way that you're tempted to tell your spouse that he is just perfect for you, or I hope you do. And then you confess your sins for telling lies and acknowledging things are not just as perfect as you had hoped. God gave them everything to enjoy, everything richly to enjoy. And in the middle of that, he gave them one little test, one simple test. A test of their trust in him and of their obedience to him. And the question was, would they believe God's word? Would they take God at his word? Would they trust God's plan? In rehearsing, for example, the test that is given to Adam and Eve, we see that that is the test given to us. That, that, that there is a foundational question that confronts every one of us this morning. Will I believe God's word? Do you believe God's promises? Do you believe God's word? Are you prepared to trust wholeheartedly God's plan? Or will I believe whatever I want to believe and do whatever I choose? Will I think that I am big enough to pick what part of this book I believe and what part I don't? The choice as rational beings is granted to them in this setting. And immediately we find that gives them the opportunity to show God that they would obey him for one reason and one reason only, 
Not because it seemed like a really good idea, but because he is God. He is God and we're accountable to him. He has designs and plans and we must do as he says. So it's in that context that the serpent appears. The serpent is real, but not ordinary. In the front of the book, there is much that is sketchy that is clarified later in the book. So by the time you get to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, we meet the character again. A great dragon, the ancient serpent, Revelation 11. Revelation 12, the ancient serpent is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. When we're confronted with the evil in the world, we're not dealing with an abstract principle. The Bible does not allow us that option. The idea that somehow or another there are bad things. We do not really know why there are bad things, whatever it might be. But the Bible says, no, we're actually dealing with a malignant, personal intelligence that is represented in this creature, that is behind this creature. And the strategy of the serpent, the objective of the evil one, is to hinder and, if possible, destroy the work of God's kingdom by every and any means possible. So God fashioned the world in all its beauty. He has made it, and it's absolutely perfect. It is good. God says it is good. And come slithering into the garden comes the serpent. The serpent comes to the woman and be begins a dialogue. I have a question for you. Did God actually say, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Of course God did not say that. But he did say, in the day that you eat of it, you should surely die. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. No, he did not say that. She made the prohibition stronger. God said you must not eat of it, and Eve, for whatever reason, takes it up a notch. So the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. What is the serpent seeking to do? To tempt the woman to distrust God. To say God does not really know what he is doing. To doubt the word that God has spoken. To question the goodness of God. The inference on the part of the serpent is essentially this. God is depriving you of something. That would make life really fabulous. If you're going to be really happy and fulfilled, that happiness and fulfillment isn't going to be found within the restrictions and the boundaries that God has established, who has made you for himself. The appeal is to the woman's sight. It's an appeal to her intellect. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes... In other words, her eyes were bigger than her ears because God had spoken. She heard that, but now her eyes see that. It's an appeal to her senses. It was ascetically good. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. It appealed to her intellect. It appealed to her emotions. It appealed to her design and desire for things to be the way she would like them to be. In short order, 
The lie of the serpent was far more appealing than the word of God. And so she ate, and Adam ate too. She gave some to Adam. He was, he was there in verse 6. He was right there. He wasn't away, away rearranging the daffodils or whatever she had asked him to do, but he was right there beside her. So she eats as a result of the temptation, and Adam eats. She was tempted to do it, and just as he chose to disobey God's clear commands, he was helped in doing it by the lie that there'd be no consequences. The lie of the devil is still the same today. I can make it possible for you to go beyond what God says, and I will make sure that there are no consequences. My dear friend, don't listen to the lie. Don't listen to the lie. It may seem so appealing, but don't listen to the lie. Do what God says. Eve listens to the serpent. Adam listens to Eve. No one listens to God. So what are the consequences, number two? The serpent's promise about their eyes being opened was only half right. Their eyes were opened, but not to the delights of being like God. But their eyes are open to an awareness of their guilt and their shame. You see what has happened? All of a sudden they see themselves in different light. Their eyes are opened and they knew that they were naked. Sin changes everything. Sin changes everything. Their nakedness was a symbol of their predicament before God. It was an awareness of their consciousness of guilt. They had sinned in rejecting and disobeying the will of God by doing what he had told them not to do. The tragedy of man is not simply that we break the law of God, but that we're spoiled. We're spoiled, we're marred from what God created us to be. So what did they do? They do what we do. They run and, they, they run and hid. It is not well. Because when you lie on your bed, you know it was wrong. Because now with the entry of sin into the equation, all of that perfection, all of that goodness is now impinged upon by the categorical rejection of God's instruction by their choice to do it their own way. One of the saddest things is when you go to a funeral and the main song is, I did it my way. It's, it's a really sad reflection of mankind, isn't it? So into hiding they go, sewing fig leaves for themselves, making loincloths for themselves. It's no surprise that this has been a figure of fun over the years, fig leaves and so on, because it is such a picture of patheticness. They thought that they could cover up with a fig leaf. Nakedness is a symbol of guilt. The fact is they're hiding behind trees and they've decided that with the communion broken, they have no place to go. Romans 1.25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. In other words, all the beauty and the holiness and loveliness that is represented in God's creation has now been besmirched, it has been soiled, it has been depleted. The tragedy of man is not we break the law of God, but we're spoiled from what God created us to be. C.S. Lewis said, we're like children making mud pies in a puddle by the side of the street when the Creator has prepared for us 
a beautiful vacation at the ocean. It's such an image, isn't it? We try to fix our condition by our own endeavours. They chose to bow to things that God had made rather than to bow to God himself. And beauty and intimacy were replaced with brokenness and isolation. Before they are banished, God comes to seek them out. They heard the sound of God. They hid themselves among the trees. That's one of the reasons why people don't come to church, at least to a church where the gospel is preached, because God will speak to you about things you don't want talked about. But he does it. He doesn't do it out of an act of judgment. He does it out of his grace and mercy. Don't you get that? It's out, it's out of his grace and mercy. He exposes things so that he might cover it. That is the gospel. He reveals it that he might forgive it. Do you know how many people are running around, hiding in the trees of their own rebellion, trying to cover up their own shame? I'm not going to go to that church. Trying to cover it up with religion itself. Maybe if I could go there, maybe if I could do thing, this, maybe if I could attempt this, I could cover it up. And you lie in your bed and you know you can't cover a single thing. God calls out to them. Isn't it great that God calls? They're fearful in their evasiveness. They can run but they cannot hide. And the reason God calls out to them is because it's not because he, has, he wants information that he doesn't have. But in order that he might express his justice and his love and his appeal in this day of reckoning. So that there is disruption and there's brokenness. And that is where they are on the count of their disobedience. Why does God come? Because he is God. I thank the Lord that God loves me even though I have disobeyed him. God still loved them, even though they had rejected him. They had done the one thing that he'd asked them not to do. And if that, were, if that isn't true, my dear friend, what hope is there for us? There is no hope. If God didn't love the rebel, if God didn't call out in the garden. So he calls out these questions to Adam, as an expression of his mercy. That's how God works. You know, you think of that little cheating man in Luke's Gospel hiding up the tree. He went up the tree because he is small, but up the tree was the only safe place for him because he didn't have any friends at the bottom. They couldn't stand him. He was a cheat, and he robbed them, and he was ashamed. So he's up a tree, and Jesus said to Zacchaeus, God knows every one of your names. God knows every one of us, even though we're by nature rebels, even though we are by nature on the east side of Eden. And God is the God who reaches out to the disobedient. What a strange thing that Eve should be so preoccupied with this tree. John Milton in Paradise Lost describes her giving obeisance to the tree, bowing before the tree. It's a wonderful line. She who would not bow before the God who made the tree bows before the tree. That preaches, doesn't it? You can bow the knee to all kinds of things. 
but would you bow the knee to God who made it all? God judges the serpent with a curse. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then it goes to the singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the he? This is the first hint of the one who will deal with the marauder and the malignant influence, the devil himself. God knows every one of us, although we're by nature rebels, even though we are by nature on the east side of Eden, he is the God who reaches out to the disobedient. And the implications of this curse on the earth extend immediately to the woman and to Adam. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Is this simply an expression of the pain that is involved? That we, as men, have no knowledge at all? Probably that. But beyond that, beyond that, there is greater pain in childbearing than that. Bringing a child into a sinful world. Watching a child grow and not knowing where he will go, how he will go. What it will mean. Some of us in the pain and sadness of the loss of children and so on. And people say, why is the world this way? It is this, the world that we know this morning is not the world the way that God made it in his perfection. But the way that man has spoiled it in its rebellion. Look around you. We often say... (laughs) Why is the world so crazy? Why is it so bonkers? Why are we even talking about things? Why are even people saying, you know, that biologically a man is not a woman? All the craziness. Because the world that it is, is the world that man has spoiled in its rebellion. And the implication there for marriage too. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. It becomes an arena for self-centeredness on both behalf of the husband and the wife. And Adam, you should know as well that although I gave you the job of looking after the garden, you're about to end up as part of the garden. You came from dust and to dust you will return. Death is the result of sin. If I think about one thing over the last 18 months, it's how people have become so scared of dying as if they weren't going to die before. I mean, what do they think happened? That we, you know, I honestly don't get it. Because the, the world has no explanation for death. They have no explanation for death. I've said it before, but in Victorian times, people talked about death, but they never talked about sex. All we talk about is sex, but no one ever talks about death. Because the world has no answer to it. They have no explanation for evil at all. The philosophy that begins with time plus matter plus chance teaches us again and again and again that man is on the ascendancy. He's going up and up and up. The Bible says he is going down. He was created in perfection and in rebellion against God's plan the rest follows. So to dust we will go. Adam, the tender of the garden, becomes part of the garden. And in terms of the conflict between the, um, the enmity, between the one who will bruise the head of the serpent and the one who will bruise its heel, this is the great conflict. This is the plot line of the whole Bible. 
just have to go to the next chapter where Cain kills Abel. The rising animosity of humanity against God's word is revealed by building the Tower of Babel. We, we will build a way up to God. Well, how did that work out for them? And in the building of the kingdom of darkness in order to confine the kingdom of God, Egypt, the bondage of God's people in Egypt, the intervention of God in the same way that he destroyed the Tower of Babel. He intervened in the Passover and brought his people out so his line might continue. Because the whole Bible, the whole Bible goes to the he, the one who will crush the serpent's head. And we have to get to the he. That's why we are here. The devil's agenda is to make sure we don't get to the he. Hence, David and Goliath, the Babylonians against Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar against Daniel, Herod tried to destroy the male children under the age of two. What are they trying to do? They're trying to destroy what God has planned so that men and women banished from the garden might be brought into the beauty and wonder and enjoyment of forgiveness instead of shame. That's what God, that's God's plan. Now that's what's happening. And when Jesus steps forth and is introduced to us, what is the first thing that happens, the temptation in the wilderness? What does he say to the Lord? I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Just do it my way. You don't need a cross. We don't need a saviour. We want to have the kingdoms of the world. So we have the context. We have the, we, we, we have the fall, but what do we have now? We have the cure. And the cure is when the Garden of Eden, which has been turned into a desert, is turned again into a garden. Garden becomes desert. In Revelation, desert becomes garden. And in the meantime, what is happening? Romans 8, 23. Not only the creation, but ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The Bible says the subplot in all of this is the one who has come, the second Adam. The first Adam fell in the garden, and the second Adam triumphed in the garden. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Adam fell in Eden. Jesus did not fall in Gethsemane. And in the triumph on the cross, Jesus crushed the head of Satan. He crushed the head of Satan. And on his return, the Lord will gather his own and give to each one the privilege of enjoying a world where there is no sin, where there is no sorrow, there is no cancer, there is no bitterness, there is no political wrangling, just beauty. So how do we get to the garden? Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. The wonder of it is this. The garden is protected so that Adam and Eve cannot get back in. Verse 24 of Genesis 3, there's a flaming sword. The cherubim are there to make sure nothing happens. They're turned away. They're guarding the way to the tree of life. So how can you get back in? Well, somebody's going to have to endure that flaming sword. 
And what does Zechariah tell us? He says that God will smite the shepherd. Who is the shepherd? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Surely he has borne our grief and has carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We who have no way whatsoever. If you think of everything that's happening in the world and all the people who think they're so clever, all the scientists, all the doctors, all the politicians, all the whoever, they have no way to get back into that garden. But as we trust Christ, as we choose no longer to live beyond the boundaries that he has set, as we choose no longer to live in the folly of all that says, God is just trying to keep everything good from me. I want to be able to cheat with whoever I want to cheat with whenever I can. I want to sleep with whoever I can sleep with. I want to be free. And I don't like those Christians because they're just restrictive. So the choice that he gave them the freedom to choose was the thing that brought them into their predicament. There was a song run by a, a singer 52 years ago, it shows how old I am, Joni Mitchell. She wrote, I came upon a child of God who was walking along the road. I asked him where he was going, and, he to- and this he told me. I'm going to camp out on the land. I'm going to try and get my soul free. We are stardust, we are golden, but we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. The poignancy of that. We have to get ourselves back to the garden. And the tragedy is, the tragedy is that 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 longing, that longing of their hearts to get back to the garden has not been met by the discovery of the one who has opened the way back to the garden. And if you speak to people who are lovers of that song, you get this response. It's about hope and positivity. I disagree. Because all that optimism of the 60s and 70s have been overwhelmed by 50 years that revealed to us when we choose the lie over the truth. When we choose to break the boundaries of God's plan, we choose to reject the one who has the key. I wonder, are you confident today that when God comes to us in the power and the glory of the person of Jesus, that you'll be included in that company? Can you sing, when the role is called up yonder, I'll be there? There's only one way to do it, to come to him and to say, Lord Jesus Christ, I am ashamed. I am naked. I've been hiding from you far too long. And I thank you for coming to find me. And I want to love you and trust you and follow you. May the Lord bless the word for his glory. Amen.